If you're new with us, uh, we're working our way through the Gospel of Luke, verse by verse, and we come to Luke chapter 16, verse 14 and following today. So we welcome you in on that study. Uh, Let's pray together before we jump in and have a look at it. Father, we approach your word today mindful that these are some really hard truths in many ways. So I pray you give us always soft hearts to receive hard truths. We know that everything you say in your word is It's not only true, but it's good for us. So it is good for us to study these things. We pray that uh, you would illuminate our minds, open up our hearts to receive this teaching, that we'd also be comforted by this teaching, knowing uh, what it means to to be saved and what it means to have a future with our Christ, that you would encourage our souls today. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen. In his uh, new book, Disappearing Church, Mark Sayers is writing about the need for faithful gospel ministry in an increasingly post-Christian world. And by post-Christian, he's referring to people who are attempting to move past historic Christianity, but still retain tiny little elements of the faith. So, for example, he describes one particular movement called the Sunday Assembly, This is a hip, contemporary congregation in the heart of central London. It's filled with progressive, passionate, and idealistic attendees. The congregation sings contemporary songs with contemporary music. Throughout the week, there are social gatherings, offerings taken up, kids' clubs, midweek small groups, social justice projects. But the Sunday Assembly is not a typical church. It's a church for atheists. The Sunday Assembly was started by two Londoners who wanted to enjoy church without belief. It quickly outgrew its 300-seat auditorium, and since 2013, nearly 500 similar congregations have been started out of this movement into key cities in the Western world. Those in the Sunday Assembly want the benefits of church without embracing the message of the church. And many in, 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 in his history have rightly criticized professing Christians who, quote, love Jesus but not the church. But this movement has turned that on its head. They don't like Jesus, but they do like church. I wonder if you can identify with this ideology. It's very possible to like certain aspects of the faith, like attending a religious service, but deep down disregard the message of the church, to deep down not believe really in heaven and hell, to not believe in the authority of scripture, to not believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation. You, know, you may not call yourself an atheist, but there are certain aspects of the Bible you just want to move past. Well, in our text today, we, we, we have some of those hard truths presented to us. The Pharisees are being addressed. You see that in verse 14. Jesus has been talking to his disciples. And the Pharisees, not atheists, but certainly not followers of Jesus. And they have criticized everything that Jesus has said so far. And Luke says in chapter 16, verse 14, they ridicule what Jesus has just said. If you weren't here last week, we looked at this parable of uh, the shrewd steward and a series of principles that Jesus gives regarding wealth. And when Jesus finishes, he says, you cannot serve God in money. And the Pharisees who are overhearing this teaching, their response to Jesus was to ridicule him, to scoff at him. So Jesus tells them some things 
many things that today's culture wants to move past. He tells them things like there's only salvation in him, that the scripture is sufficient and authoritative. He drops in a note about divorce, and then he gives a striking parable about the afterlife and two individuals who went to two different places when they died. And my friend, don't just like Jesus or religion, but, not, but, but ignore him. What Jesus says here is for our good. What Jesus says here is true. He is the master teacher, and he is the one who has come to save us from stubborn unbelief and lead us into everlasting comfort. And what Jesus says at the end of this chapter is that we have everything we need for belief because the message of the gospel has been preserved for us in scripture. It's all here. We don't need more. So before we look at this parable, let's, lead, let's look at what leads up to the parable in verses 14 to 18. Because the, the rich man in the parable that we're going to look at in a minute has really been introduced to us by the time we get there. What Jesus has said in chapter 16 uh, previously really feeds into that particular story. For example, we looked at last week that idea in verse 9 of making friends for eternity by means of wealth. The rich man doesn't do that. We read that this rich man was, was not a servant of God, but a servant of money. That was verse 13. We read in verse 15 that there are certain things that are, uh, that, that are uh, exalted among men, but are an abomination before God. What's exalted among men is often power and money and wealth, and that's what he had. And then Jesus also introduces in verses 16 and 17 the theme of the law and the prophets, which he ends up hitting on as he tells this story of the rich man and Lazarus. So what, are the, what does Jesus say before we get to that parable? Well, notice in verse 14, I've already called your attention to the idea that the Pharisees were lovers of money. And the reason that they ridicule Jesus is because he has put his finger on their idol. And so they turn their noses up at Jesus' teaching about this shrewd manager, about what Jesus says about wealth, and they mock him. Instead of receiving his words and submitting to his words, they mock his words. And this often happens. You can try to avoid conviction of sin by sarcasm as a means of deflecting what you've just heard. And the reason they have to respond in some manner is because they were lovers of money, Luke tells us. They were busy doing many religious things, but their heart was far from God. And so Jesus exposes their sin in verse 15, and he, he, he describes how, how their living is completely antithetical to the gospel. When he says, you want to justify yourselves before men. You see, their, their desire, or their, their, their reaction, rather, of, of mockery, is a, a desire for self-justification. So instead of dealing with their conscience, as, as we are prone to do when we hear hard truth, what we can do is try to justify ourselves before people in a whole number of ways, to try to make ourselves feel like we're cool with God or that other people would think we're cool with God, that God is pleased with us. And Jesus says, but God knows your hearts. God knows, in other words, what they love. Behind all of their religious activity is a heart that is far from God. And their religious practices, even though they were exalted among people, before people, they're actually an abomination or detestable to God. And so we know this morning God knows our hearts as well. 
right? And may Jesus alone be the Lord of our hearts. And let money just be a tool for serving him, for serving others. Well, Jesus wants to drill down a little deeper because the Pharisees' problem is not just with wealth. Verses 16 to 18, he goes on to point out that they have a problem with the authority of Jesus. They have a problem with obedience to God's word. And that the gospel, a heart transformed by the gospel, is the only solution to their enslavement to these things. So he launches into a bit of a digression of sorts on the nature of the law and the kingdom, or as we often refer to as, of, as redemptive history. When he says the prophets were until John, and since then the good news of the kingdom is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. So the era of promise, we call that the Old Testament, promises made, lasted until John, who is this transitional figure, who will introduce Jesus, and with the coming of Jesus, a new era has dawned. The king has come. The kingdom is being preached. And as a result, Jesus says, you should make every effort you can to enter the kingdom. Notice how, how strong that language is. Everyone forces his way into it. In other words, do everything you can to come to Jesus. Make this your top priority. Force your way into the kingdom. We've already seen in the Gospel of Luke people being drawn to Jesus, people doing radical things in order to get to Jesus. Chapter 15, verse 1 talks about the sinners and tax collectors drawing near to hear him. That is forcing their way in, getting in on the king and the kingdom. We've seen guys coming through the roof. That's forcing your way in, tearing it out. We've seen a woman pressing into the crowd to touch the garment of Jesus to get there. We've seen people crying out for mercy. So this is your top priority. This is my top priority. The king has come. This is a new era, and you may come. Get into this kingdom. We should, we should come to him with more intensity than the shoppers come on Black Friday. After Thanksgiving there, they just pour into those stories. Or how football fans storm a field after a big win. Yeah, well, that, that happened recently, I think, yeah. Um, and he said, that was awesome. Uh, not if you're an Alabama fan, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to bring that up. We're talking about good news today, though, so it's good that Sunday's after Saturday. Uh, <clears throat> but just like they, we pour into the field after the team wins, or just like the shoppers pour into the stores, pour into uh, Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Now, the law and the prophets, a shorthand way of talking about the Old Testament, continues to be God's revelation to us, which is why we continue to preach it. And we'll go back to the Old Testament after uh, Luke uh, in about 10 years, and uh, it won't be that long. And it's going to be exciting. Just wait for it. Um, but this Old Testament continues to be God's revelation, even though we no longer live under the Old Covenant. But there's continuity, because the prophets pronounced that this new era would dawn. There would be a new Exodus, a new Moses, a new David, a new creation. And God would give us new hearts to receive this kingdom. And again, the implication is, with the coming of Jesus, it is time for decision. Entrance into the kingdom is not given to everyone. Everyone must choose what they will do with Jesus. And as the parable will unfold, there is no chance after death. So the coming of kingdom has created sort of a holy crisis you have to do something. And Jesus is saying to these Pharisees in this context, don't allow money or any other idol to keep you out of the kingdom. But follow him. The king has come. 
So this good news is proclaimed, that's verse 16, the good news of the kingdom. But the arrival of Jesus in redemptive history hasn't canceled the law and the prophets, but has rather fulfilled the story that they foretold. So there's a sense in which there's continuity in the story of, of the Bible, some discontinuity as well. And so Jesus wants to make a clarifying point in verse 17. Just because the king has come doesn't mean that the Old Testament is now somehow irrelevant or obsolete. So he says it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So we don't disregard the Old Testament. We do know that there has been some discontinuity, like the food laws are no longer required for believers. And, and for that, I'm very thankful. I love shrimp and, and pork and many other things. We know that circumcision is no longer an initiatory right for entrance into the people of God. No, what we do now with the Old Testament is read it in light of the New Testament. It continues to be valid. And to clarify that we don't want to just disregard the law, Jesus wants to give an illustration, and he drops in this note about divorce and remarriage. And this is simply uh, an illustration to, to support what he's just said in verse 17, that God's moral law continues to be binding, that God continues to care about holiness, that divorce is still divorce, adultery is still adultery. Topics that Jesus himself and Paul and the, the writers of Scripture would pick up and elaborate more fully. So you may have been reading along thinking, what in the world did Jesus talk about divorce in this context? It seems to come out of nowhere. Well, he just picks one, and some authors have argued that the reason Jesus picks this one to tell the Pharisees that even though the king has come, even though this is a new arrival, doesn't mean that we neglect the, 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 the moral law of the Old Testament is because this was the one particular law that the Pharisees were breaking. And so he, he, he puts it on them as a reminder that the, uh, what we read about in the Old Testament regarding marriage remains relevant and applicable to us today. And to break this uh, commandment and to break this commitment is to set up adultery since remarriage likely follows. Now, there's a host of questions whenever you read verse 18 that come to your mind. And if you've never studied Scripture very much, you need to know that this would take in a whole other sermon for us to deal with all of the, the bits and pieces of uh, what's taught in the Scripture regarding marriage. For example, Jesus here in Luke doesn't mention what's often called the exception clause, for uh, divorce, namely desertion or sexual immorality, we read about elsewhere. Because Jesus' uh, point in mentioning this here in this context is not so much to do a sermon on uh, remarriage and divorce, but rather to simply highlight the ongoing relevance of God's law. That what has been said in the Old Testament regarding this particular issue and many other issues continues to be valid. Marriage is still a holy covenant that we keep before God that we dare not say like many want to say today, stay married just as long as you're happy, and after that you can go somewhere else. No, one of the ways we live out a faithful life in this age is by remaining loyal to our spouse. Jesus has said that God's word is to rule our finances, and here we see that God's word is to rule our relationships, and that is for our good and for his glory. So with that, we're now ready for the rich man and Lazarus. If Jesus hasn't said enough hard things, now we read about heaven and hell. I thought about maybe coming back a couple months later from sabbatic until we got out of chapter 16, but, uh, but, but here we are. 
Now, as we look at this parable, it's a very vivid parable, and I'd like to look at it in three simple parts. First of all, we see two men. Secondly, we see two destinies. And thirdly, we see two requests. Two men, very different men. First, there is a rich man, verse 19. We're we're taught that he is clothed in purple and fine linen, and he feasted sumptuously every day. So he's clothed well, and he eats well. He's very fashionable. Purple was very rare, and it came from uh, certain snails, uh, writers tell me. And it was so rare, it was hard to just even get a thread of purple. But this guy has a robe. He is dressed, his outer garments are made of purple. Fine linen alludes to his undergarments. So even his underwear is expensive. You think about today, the, uh, the clothing world still appeals to this idea of costliness as a sign of status. So, oh, he's wearing Gucci or, or, or Armani. And, and that's what you would look at as you look at this guy. I own nothing of Gucci, by the way, or Armani for that matter, but I have Kohl's and, uh, and Target. Um, <laughs> if you'd like to buy some Gucci, I'll wear it. Um, but I digress. Uh, you, you would look at this guy and say, he's, he's wearing all purple. He's what we say today, living the dream. He feasts sumptuously. The, the verb that's used here means to, to make merry. That is, he's, he's happy in his luxury, in his abundance. You imagine him hosting big parties all the time. He lives in a mansion, verse 20. He has an ornate gate. The language here is used of, of the same kind of gate that would be at a temple or at a palace. This is the first guy we meet. He's got all of this, but he doesn't know God. Think about this. We don't even know his name. Jesus simply calls him a rich man. We know Lazarus' name, but we don't know his name. This is what we know about the guy. As one writer put it, you could sum up his life in three statements. He wore expensive underwear, he had lots of fun, and he died and was buried. How very contemporary. How very sad. Lazarus' name means God is my help. God is my help. It's interesting that the name Lazarus is chosen. I don't know. Jesus chose this in light of Lazarus, who he brought back from death. But that's his name. He's unclean and he's penniless. And you can imagine a guy like this who is in such a condition, verse 20 and 21, He's covered with sores. He's desired to, be, he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table, and even the dogs licked up his sores, and yet his name means helped by God. You can imagine people mocking him and his God. Doesn't look like you're, <laughs> you're being helped very much. But as the story unfolds, we see that this was not the end of the story for Lazarus. In the end, it will show that God really is his help. That his suffering will come to an end and there will be a great reversal in his fortune. He seems that he's not favored by God. It looks like the rich man is favored by God. And it shows you how we should not view things simply from an earthly perspective. This rich man, or Lazarus is at the rich man's driveway just wanting some crumbs. He doesn't want to be invited into the party. He just wants some of the leftovers that's thrown away. You think about Luke 14, we looked at a few weeks ago. If you're going to have a party, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. 
would have been a great opportunity for the rich man to do that. But that is not what's happened. So he's there at the end of the driveway. Literally, he's thrown outside the man's gate. Perhaps because he can't move. Maybe he's immobile because of hunger. And he's unable to protect himself from the indignity of having his sores licked by dogs. Now, again, we think about dogs today. We think about wonderful little pets. And my dogs will be there to greet me when I go home in a few minutes. No one else, perhaps, but my dogs will be there. And if I want licked on the face, they will do that. Or my head, right? A beautiful, a beautiful experience. But not these dogs, right? These, these in the first century were, were diseased dogs, what we call today stray dogs, licking sores. Can you imagine this picture? Now, there was law set up in like Deuteronomy 15 where you were to help the poor and the marginalized and the stranger. The rich man sees this guy every day and he ignores him every day. And so these two guys could not be more different. One rich, one poor. One feasted, one starved. One covered in purple, one covered in sores. One had enough money to meet his own needs and throw parties. The other, who, didn't have, who had a name, unlike the other guy, had nothing. So, what do they have in common? Well, as we see next, they both had a date with death. Death is the great equalizer, isn't it? No rich and powerful person looks impressive in a casket. We can't take anything with us. The old uh, 60s, 70s song, Oh, the games people play now, every night and every day now, never meaning what they say now, never saying what they mean, and they while away their hours in their ivory towers till they're covered up with flowers in the back of a black limousine. It's a sober conclusion to life. But there's wisdom if we will heed it, as Ecclesiastes tells us. Better to go to the house of mourning. Better to think on death, because that's where we're all going, so that we can live wisely in light of it. It's a gift to be taught the things that we read in, in passages like this. So that we don't just, you know, waste our lives and, and be ready to meet Jesus. And so there are two destinies. The first destiny is blessing and comfort. And here we see the great reversal. This guy, Lazarus, ends in comfort. It says that he is welcomed at Abraham's side, that the angels carry him. Before, someone else had to carry him to the rich man's gate. Now the angels carry him to Abraham's side. A picture of fellowship. A picture of welcome. A picture of comfort. And so while the story of the rich man is a warning to us, the story of Lazarus is a comfort to us. That you and I, in Christ Jesus, know that one day all of our suffering will end. And that we will enjoy everlasting peace and joy with God's people in the presence of Jesus. Which is why the psalmist says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. We can look at that optimistically. But the other condition, eternal torment, verses 22 and 3, is a warning. It says that this rich man goes to Hades, or the the realm of the unrighteous dead, which we see in the story here, is a place of torment. While joy awaits God's people, while blessing and comfort await God's people, punishment awaits those who have rejected Christ. And again, this is so out of step with modern day thinking. This is not what we hear regularly upon the news and as people talk about other people. 
You often hear people say things like, well, he's up there watching. Or she's up there watching. He's, he's playing golf in heaven now. This text puts a, a really sharp point on this issue. What you do with Jesus Christ now determines your eternal destiny. And there's no second chance as the story now unfolds as we see these two requests. The rich man is in Hades and he has two requests. The first request is have mercy on me. The second request is go warn my brothers. The first one, verse 24, he calls out to Abraham and he says, will you send to Lazarus? Interestingly that this powerful person still thinks he can make demands. He's never lifted a finger for Lazarus, but now he wants Lazarus to come and cool his tongue because he is in anguish in this fire, he says. So here we see that his torment is pictured with fire. Elsewhere is pictured as darkness. The point that, we, that is getting across here in this parable is that it's anguish. It's awful. It is to be avoided. And so there's a response to this quest. And the response is that there has been a great reversal. Notice verse 25, Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Lazarus suffered in the previous life, but now he's comforted. You had everything in the previous life and now you're suffering. Now we shouldn't make the mistake of, of reading this text to say, well, if you're wealthy, then you're going to be in torment. Or if you're poor, that's, that's how you're justified before God. Now there are, very, there are several rich people in the Bible who are very godly, including Abraham, Lydia, Esther, Philemon, Theophilus. Jesus never said that the guy had no right to be rich. The issue is not with his bank account. The issue is with his heart. The issue is what will you do with Jesus Christ? And so there's an additional request in this mentioned in verse 26, uh, additional reason rather, why this request can't be granted. And that is, he says, there's a chasm now, a fixed chasm between believers and unbelievers that cannot be crossed. In other words, people in he heaven can't go visit people in hell and vice versa. Now is the time to decide what you want to do for eternity. And so the time to ask for mercy is not after you die, but it's right now. And the good news of the gospel is this is a time of mercy. This is a time of grace. This is a time in which we read in 2 Peter, God's not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. It's a time of patience he's having so that we may enter in. So that request is rejected. A second request is given. Warn my brothers. He believes his situation cannot be changed, and so he now is experiencing a concern for his family. Again, we can't press every detail on a parable up here. We've got to you know, draw out the big ideas. He's not saying, I, I don't think, uh, we don't see this elsewhere, that now all of a sudden those who are apart from God have a concern for the gospel and for their family and so on. But he's just basically relaying this request so that he can get us to the response in verses 29 and 30 and 31, which is saying, no, they, they don't need someone to come back from the dead because they have what they already need in the Bible. You notice what, what is requested here when he says, I have five brothers, uh, so that uh, go warn them because this is a place of torment. And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear him. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. 
If someone will rise from the dead, then that will convince them. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So a warning from one who has resurrected is unnecessary because they already have what they need in the scriptures. The scriptures point us to Jesus Christ. The Bible is a book about salvation. The Bible doesn't answer every question we have about everything under the sun, but it answers the main question, how to be saved. It tells us how to go to heaven. And the rich man responds, you see there in verse 30, say, no, they need someone to come back from the dead. That would be very persuasive to them. Maybe if Lazarus would come back, then they would believe. And we run into this, thing, this kind of thing all the time, don't we? Well, you know, if I saw a miracle, I would believe. If an angel would preach to me. If I looked into the sky and I saw a message, Jesus is Lord, I would believe. My Cheerios would spell Jesus tomorrow morning. And Jesus is saying, don't fool yourself. No, you wouldn't believe. Because this is not a matter of of miracles or displays of the dramatic, there is a fundamental heart problem. And if someone doesn't listen to the scriptures and believe, they would not be convinced should someone come back from the dead and preach to them. This is a powerful text on the sufficiency of scripture. And by the way, you know a person did rise from the dead. And what would a person who rose from the dead actually say to you? What they would say to you is what's already in the scriptures. If someone did come back from the dead, what are they going to say? What is the basis of authority upon this message? And the reason we know that to be true is because Jesus did rise from the dead. And what did he do? He did a Bible study. (laughs) And he told these disciples what was in the Bible and that they should have believed it. In Luke 24, this is what we read about. After Jesus is risen from the dead, everybody's all sad. And the guys say, hey, don't you know what's happened? And Jesus was the only one who actually did know know what, what had happened. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus rises from the dead and he says, you guys should have read your Bible. It was all there. He tells the Pharisees in John 5, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because Moses wrote of me. Church, keep trusting the scriptures. Keep reading the scriptures. Keep believing the scriptures. Keep embracing the hero of scripture, Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle in his great book on holiness says this, I charge everyone to ask himself frequently what the Bible is to him. Is it a Bible in which you have found nothing more than good moral precepts and sound advice? Or is it a Bible in which you have found Christ? Is it a Bible in which Christ is all? If not, I tell you plainly, you have, you have until now used your Bible with very little purpose. You are like a man who studies the solar system and leaves out the studies of the sun, which is the center of all. It is no wonder you find your Bible to be a dull book. Now we study this scripture, we love the scriptures because in it we see our Savior. The Old Testament points to him, the Gospels reveal him, the epistles reflect back upon him, and Revelation looks forward to him. All we need to believe is right here. This rich man thinks if his brothers would get a little glimpse of the dramatic, then they would believe. 
But saving faith often doesn't look dramatic. It looks like simply hearing the gospel and believing it, being changed by it. And church, this is why we must get this message to the nations. Heaven and hell are realities, and we have the good news. And this is why we can be used mightily of God. We have the all-sufficient scriptures that testify to Jesus. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, then please realize there, there is no second chance after death. And what you do now with Jesus impacts the rest of eternity. If you are a Christian, then you can say with the hymn writer, whatever my lot, even if it's the lot of Lazarus's life, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. If you've embraced Jesus today, you should give him thanks. You should thank him that he has rescued you out of this, this, this terrible situation and given you the promise of everlasting comfort and everlasting joy. We don't deserve this salvation, and often the tempter will come and, and accuse us and throw sins in our face to tell us that we don't deserve the comfort of Lazarus. And we can respond like Martin Luther, who said, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I knew one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I will be also. That's why we don't have the, the, the future of the rich man, and we have the future, rather, of Lazarus. It's because Jesus Christ took hell for us. Jesus Christ took the punishment on our place, and now he's promised us grace. Everlasting joy, everlasting comfort. There is a glorious future that waits all the redeemed. And even if you suffer immensely in this life, he's telling us through this parable, like Lazarus, a guy who has nothing at all, his future is amazing. And saints, I don't know what you're dealing with today, but your future, it's amazing. The half hasn't been told. And that's why we can say with the Apostle Paul, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, which should I choose? I don't know. Life or death? For I desire to, to depart and be with Christ. And he says, for that is far better. It's far better. Praise be to God that the gospel has come to us. Praise be to God that we've heard the message of the gospel contained in Holy Scripture. Praise be to God that he's awakened our heart not to live in stubborn unbelief. And we are a church that gathers weekly, not just because we like church but don't like Jesus. No, no, we gather as a church because we're into Jesus. We're into his truth. We are people who believe something. We are pe people who believe someone. And our eyes are fixed on this Christ until we see him. And one day you're going to see the one who bled for you. You're going to see the one who rose for you. And then it will all be worth it. And we'll sing a new song in a new creation. Maybe I'll get a tambourine as well in that, in that new creation. That would be awesome. It's a strong text, Luke 16. And if you're not a Christian, our great plea is that you would embrace Jesus. Join the fellowship of the redeemed. Embrace all of these promises as yours. We'd love to talk to you about that. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. May you apply the truths of this text to our hearts as we ponder the gravity of, of what's communicated here, that we would live wisely. We would live faithfully. We would make our lives count while we have breath. 
Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all the hope that you've given us in all of the suffering. We know that it is, as Paul says, short and fleeting compared to the eternal weight of glory that what lies ahead of us. And we thank you for the comfort that is promised to us because of our Christ. And we think on him now in the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.